0: I'm convinced that the greatest chapter on the doctrine of justification by faith is this chapter of Romans 4. We've been looking at it for some time. But you're not going to understand the doctrine of justification by faith until you understand the word imputation. And uh, remember we said that's the word that's found ten times in these 23 verses of this chapter. It's a very key word. In fact, in the, in the verses before us tonight, beginning at verse 9, and we'll probably, hopefully, get through verse 12, maybe a little further. I wanted to share something with you that I <clears throat> came across this afternoon. Um, if you can keep your fingers in uh, Romans 4 and find John 17 real fast. John 17 is what is known as the high priestly prayer. You know, we talk in the Christian circles about uh, the Lord's Prayer. Well, the Lord's prayer that you and I pray is really not the Lord's prayer. The, the Lord's prayer is the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He never prayed that one, But he did pray this one. He did pray the one in John 17. This is, this is Jesus engaged in prayer. We get to watch Jesus engaged in the activity of prayer. And he says some pretty profound things in this, which is called the high priestly prayer. But how many times have you read the High Priestly Prayer? How many times have you had John 17 read to you or preached to you? I mean, surely numerous times. My point is, I've, I've read it numerous times too, but found this this afternoon that I think has to do with this idea of imputation. That's why I read it. I'm in verse 23, John 17:23. Well, let me read 22 first. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one. And that the world may know that you have sent me. Now Jesus is praying here for the unity of the body of believers. And he's saying there's several purposes of my wanting to see them be one. There's several reasons that I want the people of God to be one. One of those reasons is that the world may know that you've sent me. That is, there is an impact that is made on the non-Christian world by watching Christians be united. There's an impact uh, of us loving one another, and one of those impacts is that the world will then conclude that 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 God has sent him. All right, But then notice this last one. There's one other impact that it would make if the world could watch us being one. There's one other impact, and the impact is a fact. The, the, the fact exists, but the world hasn't seen it yet. But they would see it if you and I would dwell in harmony and unity together. And the fact that, there are two facts. Number one, that the Father sent the Son. And the second one is this. That, and, that the world may know that you have sent me. And, that the world may know that you have loved them as you have loved me. Now, ladies and gentlemen, do you get that? Now that's a fact. Maybe it hasn't impacted the world yet because we haven't been one. But the fact is simply this that because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us who believe, the Father loves you like he loves his the love that he has for his son is, is the way that you're loved because God has imputed his righteousness to you. Think about that. Think about being... I mean, um, I think one of the things that the people of God wrestle with is the, the, uh, how hard it is to believe that I'm really loved by this God. Well, not only are you really loved, but you're loved the way the father loves his son. That's the result of imputation, ladies and gentlemen. Um, That is the concept that is at the center of an understanding of justification by faith. If you're ever going to understand justification by faith, you have to understand imputation. That God credits to my account a righteousness which is not mine, but is Christ's. I get credit for it. It gets put in my account as if it were mine. That's what imputation means. Well, Paul is establishing the doctrine of justification by faith in these first eight verses, and then in verses nine, and really through at least 15. I haven't prepared beyond 16, so I only know <clears throat> um, in verses nine through 15 he is answering some arguments, some arguments that he thought that the Jewish audience would raise. Um, He is very knowledgeable of what his audience is thinking, which is always a good thing if you're a public speaker. If you're trying to convince an audience of something, it's nice to know what your audience is thinking. Well, Paul seems to understand the Jewish mind as well as anybody, but of course he was a Jew. And so he addresses this issue once again where he's trying to address objections, as he has stated the doctrine clearly and explained it in verses 1 through 8, then he thinks, okay, I know what they're thinking. I know what they're thinking. Then what about circumcision? Uh, What what role does it play? And so if you'll notice in verses 9 through 12, let me read those. That's, That's the objection that he's answering. That's what this little paragraph is about. 9 through 12 he is answering the objection about circumcision that would be in the mind of a thinking Jew. Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Are you confused yet? It's not really that tough. And he received the sign of circumcision, the seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe. Though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Now, you know, if that's a bunch of gobbledygook to you, you know, that's why they pay me big bucks uh, to try and unravel this. Because it's not that hard. It really isn't, y'all. I, I'm telling you, all he's trying to do is simply explain away the objection that Jews have raised about the role that circumcision plays in making a man righteous before God. That's all he's doing here. Um, <clears throat> to reply to their objection, Paul simply points them in this section to a piece of their own history. They're thinking, wait a minute now, I thought circumcision made you righteous. And he's saying, wait a minute now, you need to think again with me. And the thing that I want you Jews to think about is your own history. Just think about it for a minute, says Paul to the Jew. Um, I want to point out some of your own history that is well known to you. You already know this. And by the way, as an aside, somebody there's a digression, Paul is using Old Testament history to explain New Testament doctrine. You have to understand, gang, the, the, the Christian mind, the Christian, or, there, there is a distinct role that the Old Testament plays in Christian thinking. That's my point. There are things in the New Testament that you will never understand if you do not understand the Old Testament. Here's one of them. And may I say, take the entire book of Hebrews, you'll never unravel any of that. Unless you understand what your Old Testament has to say. All, my only plea is study the Old Testament, not just the new. Well, Jimmy, it's got so much of that stuff back there that I can't understand. That's okay. We'll wade through it over uh, several years. But it's, you must understand the Old Testament should affect the way you think as a Christian. Right. That's the digression. Paul is replying to this, this thing about um, circumcision and says, think about it. The Old Testament tells you a story about uh, Abraham. And Abraham's, or Paul's answer, refers them to this. Okay, guys, think about this. When was Abraham declared... Look look at the text. He says, um, uh, verse 10, How then was it accounted, that is, how is righteousness accounted, while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? He's simply asking... When was Abraham accounted righteous? After he was circumcised or before he was circumcised? He's just asking me to review history. When did circumcision come along, says Paul? Well, it came along some 14 years after Paul, uh, Abraham was declared righteous. The text is Genesis fifteen six. Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness. Now, when did he get circumcised? Well, that was some fourteen years later. And Paul is reasoning with his video, You mean to tell me? Can't you see the point? You've missed the point. How can he possibly have been declared righteous when he wasn't circumcised until fifteen years later? You can't possibly think, oh, Jewish audience, can you? That his circumcision was the basis for his righteousness? No, no, no. He was declared righteous 14 years earlier. Do you get that? What possible basis could could circumcision form as a basis of righteousness if it didn't come until 14 years after he was declared righteous? Um... Not while circumcised, that is, he was declared righteous not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. The Jew is saying, well, I don't know how you get righteous before God or get right before God. You get circumcised. And Paul says, Abraham didn't do it that way. Abraham was declared righteous 14 years before he was circumcised. So circumcision is not the grounds nor the basis of his righteousness. you get it? I mean, it's—he's just asking him to consider the sequence of events, and you would think that that would be enough. Pretty logical, isn't it? You couldn't ground or base righteousness on an act that didn't happen until 14 years after God said He was righteous. Am I confusing you? Hello. You're you're with me still, okay? Um, And you would think that would be enough of an argument. You would think that they would say, oh, okay, well, it happened 14 years afterwards. Then, uh, then it couldn't possibly have been the grounds of his, his righteousness because it, he was declared righteous back here, and it, that circumcision thing didn't happen until 14 years later. You would think that would be enough of an argument. But he goes on in his argument. And I'm, I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, I, I think there's a point to be made here. You, you, um, it is so logical. Um, maybe I could draw this. Genesis 15, 6. Abraham is declared righteous. Fourteen years later, he's circumcised. And it's, we'll talk about that in just a second. Two thousand years later, Jews are saying, this is the grounds of my being righteous before God. And Paul says, y'all, that's stupid. Your father Abraham was declared righteous 14 years before he was circumcised. He wasn't declared righteous when he was circumcised, it was when he was uncircumcised. That is, your father Abraham was righteous before God in an uncircumcised state. How could you possibly trust in that as you stand here 2,000 years later? You get it? Um, you would think that that would be enough. That is so terribly logical. How could I possibly base my salvation on an, on an, an event that Abraham didn't and I'd call him the father of the faith. But unbelief, ladies and gentlemen, is so very tenacious. Unbelief doesn't, doesn't heal to logic. This is very simple logic, but it wasn't enough for uh, them. To be, to be found out, to be so illogical in your position, doesn't convert anybody. Because I'll tell you this, ladies and gentlemen, it is not that hard. It is not that hard to show the non Christian how foolish and irrational it is his position. It's not that hard. I think the Christian church thinks it is, it's not. They haven't got that much leg to stand on at any point. Not in modernism, not in postmodernism. It's It's all pretty irrational. But what you see in it is the tenacity of unbelief. They will hold on to their unbelief even though logically they have been demonstrated to be foolish. Well, that's somewhat of an aside too. But we're at verse, last half of verse 10. No, no, not while circumcised. That is, he was declared righteous not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. Now verse 11, he goes on in his argument. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised that he might be the father of all those who believe though they are uncircumcised that righteousness might be imputed to them also (laughs) i hope that doesn't trouble you because it's not that what what is the what is the purpose of paul is addressing what is the purpose of circumcision in verse 11. the purpose of circumcision is that it is a seal it authenticates but can I have another digression? And I'm not sure that many in this room will, will understand this. But if you know anything about the... I'm not sure I should do this because I'm not sure you're really interested in the the debate between the dispensationalists and the covenantalists. Maybe I shouldn't do that. <laughs> I, I knew you would be. <laughs> I knew he would. But, but there's, a, there's a point in here that is... Uh, let, let me just say this real quickly, and, I, and you, you can ask me about it later if you like, but um, in covenantalism, we make a distinct um, association between baptism and circumcision. This is one of the reasons we do. This text right here, but I, 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 we'll leave that. Circumcision is not the grounds of anybody's justification. It is a seal. It is a verification of the fact that they have been justified or declared righteous. That's all it is, you know? Nope. I try to think of a good illustration, and I hope this is a good one. But if you're if you're a real estate agent or a lawyer, you might prove me to be wrong. But you know, when you close on a house, you um, you go through all this stuff, and and you have to pay all these little fees, and you know, you thought you were paying. You know, $175,000 for the house, and you end up at the end, it's 183000 and you wonder where the uh, 8000 came from, and you think, well, it's right here, and it's, you know, it's right over here, and, you know, and they look, they got these whole list of charges on this big old long sheet of paper, you know, and, you're, <laughs> and the more you sit there, the you know, I don't know if I can cover this, you know, and, and you had no idea that that's what it was going to end up in, exactly. if I could paying $177,000, that's what you offered. But um, then you sign all the little documents and you start, they, they give you all these stack of papers in this nice little uh, plastic folder and you take it home, you're supposed to own the house now. And, and then you start looking through all your, your papers and you notice, oh, I had to pay for this. Oh, I see. Okay, I had to pay for this, I had to pay for this. Then it comes down and you get to these little seals, these little little stamps that you, you know, you get a county stamp and you get a state thing and, and um, but you get this. You get this county, or I don't know whether it's county, state, federal, or global, but it's some little thing that's on your deed that is a seal that this is a valid transaction. That's what circumcision is. It is a seal that authenticates the, that the person who has it is a, um, has been declared righteous. And it, the, 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 the seal itself doesn't accomplish anything. The seal just verifies authenticity. But then there's a danger in even saying that. Can you see it? But Paul corrects it. He said that in verse 11 and then in verse 12, and the father of circumcision to those who are not only who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith which our father Abraham while still uncircumcised. Gang, look back at verse 11 with me for a moment, that Abraham is made the father of all those who believe. Gang, um, if you're ever in a, a conversation with a Jew about faith in Christ, you just tell him that Abraham is your father. You just say, I'm a son of Abraham. You are? Well, I am too. Well, I don't know about that, but but just kind of stay with me here for a minute. But a son of Abraham, Abraham is the father of all those who believe. He's not the father of the circumcised. He's not the father of the uncircumcised. He's the father of the believing circumcised, and he's the father of the believing uncircumcised. Because you see, circumcision is not the issue. Nothing is based on the event, which is to be nothing more than a seal. Um, And then he goes on in verse 12, "...and the father of circumcision to those who are not only are of the circumcision." Now, guys, if he had stopped and said that Abraham is the father of the circumcision, then we'd be in trouble. If he'd only said Abraham has become the father of the circumcision, then what that would have suggested is that, that Abraham is the father of all Judaism. But Paul goes on to say to those who not only are of the to those who are not only circumcised, but who also walk in the steps of the faith, which our father Abraham, while still uncircumcised. Do you see what, what he's trying to correct? See, Abraham, guys, is not simply the father of the circumcised. He's the father of the circumcised who also walk in the steps of faith. Yeah, 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 yeah. He can be uh, the father of the circumcised, if you'd like. That is, he can be the father of Judaism to the degree that the, the Judaism walks in, the um, the the walks in the step of faith. He is the father of the uncircumcised, to those who walk in the step of faith. He is the father of the circumcised, who walk in the step of faith. Because the issue is the, the issue is not whether you've been circumcised or uncircumcised. The issue is what do you believe? Because it is the grounds of faith. It is on the grounds of faith that justification <laughs> is declared. Now, guys, let me say two quick things and I'm finished. The problem in Judaism that Paul is recognized or is battling in this little paragraph is that Judaism had taken the seal and turned it into the reality. They had taken the symbol and they had turned it into something meritorious. They took Juda- they took, Judaism took circumcision and said, it is that which becomes the ground of my rightness with God. Judaism did that, and Paul's trying to correct it. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Christianity does that too. Christianity takes seal, which is baptism, and turns it into a meritorious thing, too. And the error is exactly, and it is the same error. The errors are identical. My baptism is not a meritorious act. It is a seal of something else. Circumcision is not a meritorious act. It is a seal of something else. Now, gang, I'm, I'm hoping that this very fine, handsome, sharp-looking group here, they all know that. I hope you know it. Because um, whenever I ask somebody, are you a Christian? I don't usually ask it like that. And they say something like, well, I'm trying to be. You know, I'm trying as I can to be one of them. You don't understand it. You didn't get it because you're turning whatever it is that you're trying into something meritorious. And that is the great flaw in evangelical thinking. Well, it's not evangelical. It's uh, professed evangelical thinking today. I'm trying as Lord as I can. Well, quit it. Guys, there is a whole doctrinal position out there called baptismal regeneration. You ever heard of it? Baptismal regeneration. That is that regeneration comes on the heels of baptism and there are people promoting it every day Um, on their TV programs and their radio programs and they're turning a sacrament into something that merits for them eternity. Paul goes out of his way. And and by the way, gang, may I say this real quickly, and I'll I'll quit. This is not the first time he's addressed circumcision. Look look, look with me real quick. Look at um, Romans 2, verse 28. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart. He's already addressed it. Why can't you guys get it? Why don't you get it? And he trips over a, a, a chapter and he's got to dress it all over again. Because unbelief is tenacious. Um, Guys, I, I marvel sometimes that you still come every Wednesday night. Because you know what, I, I've been doing this over and over and over again pretty much ever since we moved away from the, uh, the uh, legalism versus uh, antinomianism discussion over and over again, I'm trying to explain justification by faith. Aren't you bored of this yet? Don't you want me to go do something like, you know, let's, let's talk about tongues or something, you know? You know, it'll really be exciting, get controversy. You know, uh, he keeps going on and on and on. Now, tell me this. Just think about it for a minute, just think about it. Let's say on Easter Sunday morning, well, that's not a bad Sunday. Let's say on a normal Sunday morning we have 1,400 people here, okay, including the children. In your mind, what percentage of that 1,400 will end up in heaven? I don't know. You know, I don't. I don't dislike. I do know this. My buddy R.C. Sproul stood in a pulpit in this city and looked out uh, at the congregation and told them that 70% of them weren't going to heaven. And the preacher took him aside uh, in between services and said, don't say that again. And he didn't. Um, (laughs) Is it that high? You know, I don't know. But my point is, do you think that they have heard me talk about that salvation is through faith alone? Do you think they've heard me say that before? How many times do you think they've heard me? How many times do I have to say that? But what you find illustrated, ladies and gentlemen, let's, let's just say it's 40%, okay? Let's just say 30%. Let's try to be as, as gracious as we can be. 30%. What you see illustrated in that 30% is the tenacity of unbelief and the desperate attempt on the part of unbelieving man to do something that would merit something before God. We are so determined to be able to somehow contribute to our standing. And so the unbelieving man holds onto it with barrage after barrage after barrage after barrage. How about this room? Are all 100% of us, you reckon? I don't know. But I'm going to come back and do it again next week. And again the next week. And the next week. And the next week. And if you walk out of here as an unbeliever, it will simply illustrate again how tenacious, determined is an unbeliever to damn himself. And that is certainly the why we uh, preach justification by faith alone. Hopefully that won't happen. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray that your people will have a greater sense of understanding of a passage that may have on first blush confused them. I pray that some little bit of light, might have been shed on this text so that they can look at it and sense and feel that maybe they don't understand every word of it but that they can feel better about the fact that it does not condemn them but it marks them off as those who will be treated as if they were the son of God himself because indeed his righteousness has been imputed to every believing man or woman whether circumcised uncircumcised baptized or unbaptized righteousness is ours by grace through faith alone we pray in Jesus name amen we'll see you hopefully again next week